Welcome, True Believer readers, to another episode of Let's Read Spider-Man, the best podcast to break down hard-hitting dialogue such as, what are you, a sportscaster or a clown? Here to provide analysis for that line and so much more is my friend Eddie. How are you today, Eddie? Oh, I'm feeling great. Went on a big bike ride today and a little vacation before this. I am not a sportscaster. I am a podcaster. Do you think that helps me define whether I'm a clown or not? <laughs> well, that was a line that happened in uh, the second book we're going to be talking about today. Oh, I see. Which is a line from the character that we're never probably going to read about ever again. It's true. But we should break down our first book because that's a book that's pretty important because it's one of our flagship Amazing Spider-Man books. And that's from March of 1984, Stanley presents The Amazing Spider-Man 249 Secrets by Roger Stern, John Romita Jr., and Dan Green. Peter is enjoying some sunshine by the pool at Liz and Harry's house in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Liz, Harry, and MJ are all there, and when an intense blip of the spider sense disturbs him... Peter is really bulked up here. He's drawn much bigger than when he was in high school, but... He's got this shirt on that says animal, and it's a it's a bare midriff, too. In the words of my daughter, Violet, upon seeing this shirt, she says, what the heck? <laughs> it's kind of a silly interaction because he says, oh, uh, this is a gag from a friend. But if you don't like the shirt, Peter, don't wear it. So making him kind of socially uncertain, uh, I guess, is the goal that's accomplished. You didn't like the shirt? I don't think so, because it just seems out of character for him, and they don't really address it very well. It's a black cutoff that says animal <laughs> in white lettering. Big white lettering. He wears it for most of this book. Sure. Well, while Peter lounges at the pool with this shirt on, uh, across town, J. Jonah receives an envelope blackmailing him for his involvement in creating the Scorpion. This is strange, because J. Jonah was certain no one could have this information. Back in New Jersey, Harry receives a similar envelope and abruptly rides his motorcycle away from the pool party. Peter follows and coaxes Harry into telling him that the envelope identifies Norman Osborn as the Green Goblin. Yeah, Harry not knowing his dad or he was the Green Goblin just seems crazy. This has been a theme that I keep bringing up. I'm just going to accept it from now on. So this is like, wow. Harry just found out that his dad was the Green Goblin. That's crazy. That's, that's the way it is, yeah, James B. It's okay. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, with this reputation-damaging info, Peter accompanies Harry to the Century Club, where an agitated group of prominent businessmen, including the Kingpin, awaits the author of these damning letters, who turns out to be... The Hobgoblin. The Hobgoblin intends to extort the businessmen, but when J. Jonah refuses to parley, Harry joins him in protest. The Hobgoblin mocks the young Osborne, and Harry clocks him. Surprisingly, Hobby's head pops off because the mock-up is just an animatronic robot. Uh, another one of our moments where I get to say, you know, if you can make a robot... <laughs> That's this complicated that it could be sitting there and have this whole conversation. It, multiple lines and inflections. and It can stand. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you could just be a millionaire inventor, right? If you can do all this. I'm just saying maybe there's a better way to make money than to, to sell your robot for millions as opposed to try to extort a few people. Just saying. 
Well, the real Hobgoblin then crashes through the window, but Spider-Man attacks from the shadows. The tide of the battle turns when the Hobgoblin gasses Spider-Man, and the Spider-Sense uh, is gone from Spider-Man. As Spider-Man lays unconscious, it looks as if he will die at the hands of the Hobgoblin, but he is saved by... The Kingpin. The Kingpin not only saves Spider-Man, but manages to tag the Hobgoblin with a spider tracer as he sends him away. When Spider-Man awakes, he is baffled to see a savior. The Kingpin explains it's better to let Spider-Man apprehend the Hobgoblin. A smart move for the Kingpin. He's like, I'll let Spider-Man do my dirty work. He can take up the Hobgoblin. The Hobgoblin could be a threat to me. So, brilliant move. There can't be a better current villain than the Kingpin in all of Spider-Man. Can you think of anyone, James B.? I don't think this is completely fair, because the Kingpin comes with all kinds of power. The other villains that we've been reading about for the past two years, they're clawing and scratching from, like, blue-collar jobs or science experiments gone wrong. They introduced Wilson Fisk. He's, like, this powerful Kingpin of crime. Like, they just... Do we ever get an origin story on him, Eddie? You know, I don't think we ever did. It would be... Very interesting to see if he clawed his way up from being some kind of, I don't know, you know, messenger boy or whatever. I, I assume I mean, that's what they're going to tell us about him. He, he didn't like inherit podca- his wealth. So. Yeah, 12 podcasts ago, we did the whole special with Daredevil and the Kingpin. Like, we did a whole coverage of the Kingpin returning. Like, that was right. well-timed. But I don't ever know why he's the Kingpin of crime and why he has you know all this strength. Um, a couple of things I enjoyed about this book. I really like the idea the Hobgoblin is blackmailing all these people. It's something that the original Green Goblin would do. Yes. And uh, obviously what we just talked about, the Kingpin is excellent in this issue. But you get a lot of other J. Jonah and Harry. You know, there was a time, Eddie, where we would hit a book and we'd be, let's just talk about the fact that Harry learns his dad's the Green Goblin. Right. That impact of that. He told this to Peter. But there's just so much going on in this book that that just gets pushed to the background. I'm also willing to overlook the robot because of all the other goodness in this book. <laughs> it is a really busy book, and I think it's going to be much more prominent in the future that the Hobgoblin is able to gas Spider-Man and eliminate his spider sets, which is what happens here. Um, that's really big, too. It's, it's going to hinder his fighting for a long time. Not the first person to figure out this formula. That's true, so. but... Let's, let's, get, let's get Doc Connors and uh, Peter Parker working on this anti-Spider-Sense knocker-outer <laughs> formula. Yes, Eddie, back in April, we received an email from one of our excellent listeners named John Aaron, and he suggested we read a particular book. So, without further ado, from March of 1976, DC and Marvel present Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man in The Battle of the Century, presented by Carmine Infantino and Stan Lee, written by Jerry Conway, drawn by Ross Andrew, and inked by Dick Giordano. Spider-Man and Superman independently fight and jail their longtime arch-nemesis, Doc Ock and Lex Luthor, in similar fashions. The two heroes don their civvies and head to their respective news reporting jobs, where they are both treated poorly by their bosses. Meanwhile, the villains uh, cooperate in jail, escape, and concoct a convoluted plan to defeat Spider-Man and Superman. This book, which is super long, is very well done. It includes an additional page at the end of each massive section, reviewing the powers of each hero. 
and eventually covers like even each villain because the writers and the publishers realize some people won't have knowledge of all these characters in 1976. So it's really well thought out. Very thorough. Back at an international news conference, MJ and Lois Lane are kidnapped by Lex Luthor in a disguise. Uh, He's disguised as Superman. Spider-Man ends up engaging in the time-honored obligatory hero fight with the real Superman until he punches himself out. You know, it's a little Marvel team-up-y here, except Superman really understands why Spider-Man is fighting him. So Superman tries to hold back, although at one point he's like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to fight him now. (laughs) As opposed to, I guess I'm going to have to explain it. But he does let Spider-Man punch him enough that... Spider-Man's hands get all banged up and Spider-Man has to kind of just like stop punching him. Uh, There is a sequence here where Lois and Peter are kind of professionally flirting. MJ's being sassy. And that was a a pretty fun sequence to see there. Agreed. Uh, Well, the heroes finally team up and follow the villains to the docks, then to Mount Kilimanjaro, and finally in space... Uh, In space, the villains blast Earth with a laser, creating a massive hurricane. Spider-Man and Superman arrive and battle Lex Luthor and Doc Ock, but when Superman departs to stop the hurricane, Spider-Man finds himself entwined by Doc Ock's tentacles. As Luthor declares the planet will be destroyed, Doc Ock goes wildly out of character and tries to stop his foe from destroying... His home, too, as he puts it. Destroying the Earth is pretty crazy for our Spider-Man villains who typical are street-level villains. I mean, yes, there's a Marvel team where he messes with Kang and Doctor Doom is always a little bit of a threat. But this is really too big for Spider-Man to have someone say, I'm going to destroy the Earth. So it felt really weird here. Superman stops the hurricane while Spider-Man corrals the villains in space and they return to Earth to deliver their respective... Uh, nemesis to jail. Clark Kent and Peter Parker return their bosses with exclusive and arm in arm they walk off with MJ and Lois. Was it wildly out of character like I wrote for Doc Ock to try to save the world in the 11th hour? I think all of the Spider-Man heroes and villains in the movies we've seen and the books we've read would not try to destroy the Earth. So I think it makes sense for anyone to sort of Say, hold on, I need to... The bigger picture here is we can't let the world be destroyed. It was not wildly out of character. In fact, this is a guy who goes out of his way to protect Aunt May sometimes at his own expense. No, not not at mm. all. Well, <laughs> the other thing about Doc Ock in this book, which I thought was odd, we've read Spider-Man so many times, and he never loses his glasses, but in this battle, he loses his glasses... And when Lex Luthor returns them to him, they're all broken. But it doesn't seem to really affect him. I just, why hasn't this happened before? (laughs) They just wanted to add another couple pages to this book. And they (laughs) felt like we could have a broken glass sequence. There was a sequence where they're fighting the natives for like five pages. It looked like, I mean, they really, this book was long. Yeah, I ignored it. It it was, what, is this the longest book we've ever covered? It could be. I mean, how many, do you know how many pages it is? 92 pages, James B. This is the longest book for sure we've ever covered. And they wanted to make it longer by adding Doc Ock's glasses breaking for a page. Well, we need to do some short books to wrap this up because we just did some long books. Eddie, I'm taking the next book off on our show, okay? I'm going to have a guest co-host come in and replace me. Is that all right with you? 
no problem. I have a guest right here. She's been waiting patiently for our next book. Violet, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Violet Haspatcher, daughter to Eddie Haspatcher. I'm nine years old, I'm in fourth grade, and I have lots of friends who like to play with me. Great. It's great to have you on the show again, Violet. Um, well, we do have another book that's kind of special, like our Superman book. It's from May of 1985. Stan Lee presents Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham 1, The Mysterious Island of Dr. Doom, by Skeets, Armstrong, and El Bilo. We open at the Daily Bugle. Actually, it's a Daily Beagle. <laughs> All right, here I go again. We open at the Daily Beagle, where J. Jonah Jackal won't buy Peter Porker's latest pictures because they portray Spider-Ham as too much of a hero. J. Jonah Jackal barks at his interns and Peter that they need to go investigate the St. Croix trapezoid, uh, and they rush off. J. Jonah was walking with a bone grease. It's used for him to yell more at Peter Porker. I completely missed this, but he is carrying a like a tin can of jawbone grease. <laughs> Well, we'll see about uh, J. Jonah here, because he pilots a jalopy of a plane. Carrying the quartet of newsmen, this is Peter Porker and three interns from the Beagle, uh, when they are pulled into a giant magnetic tractor beam towards an island. There, they are imprisoned by Dr. Doom and his army of ducks and kangaroos. When J.J.J. meets Dr. Doom, he puts his cigar into his mouth. That's a rude way to meet somebody. It is super rude. Um, Well, thankfully, we move on and learn that Doom's plan is to form rock bands out of the prisoners he's drawing into the island um, to create a rock and roll music video to then sell to the masses for great profit. But the band's first performance must meet the approval of Doom's kangaroo goon audience. And the kangaroo goon audience is not easily pleased. Those goons were in the audience, but there was something weird about them, wasn't there? You should look at the kangaroo's eyeballs. Their eyeballs are always looking up. They never know what they're doing. They literally don't have anything they like to do. The only part when they're truly looking up is when they ba- they bounce Peter Porker around. Well, the three Beagle interns are taken to Doom to perform, and Spider-Ham finally makes an appearance. Spider-Ham defeats the entire duck army that Dr. Doom has, uh, while Dr. Doom throws a fit about his inability to make a hit song. Doom's fit inadvertently appears perfect to his kangaroo audience. Uh, Although he objects strongly to being a star, his performance is recorded and distributed, and J. Jonah Jackal writes an exclusive about the Doctor's music, which sells many, many newspapers. There was a part that you were concerned about in this book, Violet. It wasn't all fun and games, was it? Peter Parker uses webbing on the plane, and then the... Then, when they get off the plane, when they go to the island, the bunny notices the webbing. And then, I'm very scared for Peter Porker that his identity might get sh- might get shown to this little bunny of ours. Not all fun and games, it's true. Violet, what did you think of the end of the Spider-Ham book? <laughs> I didn't get to read the end. Sorry. Like a true Haspatchorian guest. I was 
story. I didn't get to read the end. I specifically said you had to read the rest of the book. I was You had trying. all afternoon. I was trying. I'm not kidding. There's so many excuses for why you did not complete reading the book. Thank you for your input on Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham, number one, Violet. Uh, I think, James B., you got one more thing? Yeah, you guys did a great job with that book. One thing that I want to make sure we know is that just like The Amazing Fantasy 15 leads into the first Amazing Spider-Man book, there was actually a book that was the predecessor to this book. It was a Marvel Tales book from 1983. Tales, of course, spelled oh. T-A-I-L-S. And I took the took a moment and decided I'll tell you about that book, and you guys can let me know if you have any questions. Okay, sounds good. That book was from November of 1983, Marvel Tales, starring Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham, If He Should Punch Me, by DeFalco, Armstrong, and Abella, which is the same artist, by the way. After teaming up to stop the Gopher Gang, Heroes and workmates, Spider-Ham Peter Porker and Captain Americat Steve Mouser, go see J.J. <laughs> Jackal, who sends them on an assignment to a new video arcade game uh, you know, building, which is located right next to an old amusement park. It seems the masked marauder has been sabotaging the new games and inadvertently creates Hulk Bunny in the process. The heroes try and stop Hulk while also capturing and revealing the identity of the mass marauder. It turns out to be the jealous old amusement park owner from next door. Uh, there's also a short story about Goose Rider, which fills out the end of this book. <laughs> so I wanted to know, did you guys have any questions about the uh, origin of Peter Porker and the Spectacular Spider-Ham, or you guys think I did a nice job covering it? Oh, I thought you did a great job covering it, actually, and... Why? Why did this happen? What do you think? <laughs> why did? Why did they start writing Peter Porker? It, mean, you know, it, it took place before the Assistant Editors Month too. I I, I don't know why it just came out, but it's a thing. I, I I am suspicious that Peter Parker, as we stated, he's very like bulky and very mature, and they wanted to reincorporate like the younger audience, like nine year olds. Hmm. Did you Did you like Peter Porker? Yes. Does, it, it was a very nice book. I think why that why they made it is because that they knew that Peter Parker was good, but they wanted to have an animal orange orange story about him. Maybe. This this sounds like something you would do because I know you love animals so much. Speaking of Violet's love of animals, Eddie, today's sponsor is the Animal Shirt. It's an elegant half shirt that can be given as a gift. Or simply worn to any occasion, letting people know you're really into partying. You can wear it all day long through the entire book. I mean, through your entire day. It's available at your favorite local or online retailer. Except no imitations. The animal shirt. So, Eddie, you're going to get yourself um, an animal shirt? Maybe one for you, one for V? I have no business really wearing a crop top. Nor do I want to associate that closely, I guess, with a 80s version animal. Violet, what do you think of the animal shirt? I think it's it's really good. I like crop tops, but... <laughs> what? <laughs> you think you and your sister should get one each or two each? Two each. Okay. <laughs> two each? Available in dog sizes for little Pepper, too. Aww! Of course. He is actually the biggest animal of all in your house. <laughs> Eddie, you did a very nice job with the summaries today, but you were shown up a little bit by your daughter who did a nice job with the analysis. Man, it's true. Well, maybe people could write in and tell me more about it at letsreadspiderman at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Twitter at Let's Read Spidey. And now it's time for the close 
I'm James B. Joined by Eddie and Violet. And remember, listeners, if Spider-Man turns into a Spider-Ham, you might have to save some prisoners from having to join one of Dr. Doom's rock bands. Goodbye. Bye. Hey, you know, Harry's riding a motorcycle, but it's not red or rollicking. Is this the word we use to describe it, James B.? It was written as rock a licking in one of the books, I swear. All right, all right. Well, um, but I know somebody else who rides a much more rock-a-lickin' motorcycle. On my extended vacation, I went and visited Sarah Pezzel. Wait a second. You went on vacation and you stopped off and visited one of our listeners? That is correct, Sarah Pezzel. Um, she's in Las Vegas. And I got to tell you, James B., when I went to see her, her Spider-Man and collection live it was so much more impressive uh than in any video or picture i've ever seen there's just so much stuff and it's it's really cool and i gotta say you know she is also a middle school orchestra teacher but she has this giant arm tattoo of spider-man and all the villains and she has a green motorcycle it's quite a different effect when she goes to school than when i drive my uh old toyota minivan up to school (laughs) I'm implying she's much cooler than me, James B. Got it. It's a little sad, actually. Absolutely. (laughs) I think you're cooler. Oh, thank you, V.